If you will turn over one page in your worship folder, we are coming to our time in the service where we get to study God's Word. And we're really happy to have Joe Johnson, uh, RUF minister at Birmingham Southern College, who is going to preach to us this morning. And so we welcome him, and I'll read the passage, and then he'll come up and he will preach to us. The teaching for this morning will be from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. This is God's Word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is, uh, it's good to be here. Like Matt said, my name is Joe, and I am the newly minted campus minister at Birmingham Southern. So I've been here for um, about eight weeks, so everything's under control, and I know exactly what I'm doing. Don't worry about Birmingham Southern RUF. Um, I want to thank this church for a number of different things, uh, for loving uh, college students and for loving the ministry of RUF. I am your campus minister to that campus, and I love when churches support us and pray for us, as I know you're doing. So thank you for that. But also on a more personal note, uh, thank you for being my friends. Uh, we just moved here. And I knew a few of y'all. I used to work at uh, RUF at Auburn as an intern. And so old friends in this church that so we got to see. And I love your pastors and their families. But a lot of y'all I just didn't know. And you welcomed us in. And so thank you for that. And if you're new this morning, know that that's here. And we're glad that you're here. And I hope you experience that as well. Uh, I just graduated seminary, which is information and a little bit of a warning. Uh, to you this morning. Uh, and when you are graduating seminary, your last semester, professors begin to give you a lot of practical advice. They've prepared you for ministry for three or four years, but they have like one more semester to warn you about what's to come in your first year of ministry. And usually that advice comes in the negative, like what not to do, and which is sometimes more helpful than what to do, like with the landmines to avoid. And so there is some advice on um, don't get to a place, a ministry or a church, and just change everything. Right, that's a bad way to start. Good advice. Uh, don't go be a pastor that only sits in his office and studies all day. That's good advice. Uh, one piece of advice that's very ironic for this morning is that I had a preaching professor tell us, whatever you choose to preach your first year in pastoral ministry, don't choose Romans. It's too good and you're too young and you need time. 
So we're going to be in Romans 4 this morning because Will Spokes asked me to. And I pray that my seminary professor uh, is not listening to this podcast. But it is that good. And in some degree, I am too young, all of us, do not have enough time to appreciate what is going on here in this text because Romans 4 is going to tell us that Jesus is better than we could ever imagine. That Jesus is so good that it's almost hard for us to believe. Now we're going through Genesis and Romans in the morning, so we're going back and forth, those two conversation partners that show us the whole of the teaching of the, the gospel. And so we're back in Romans, so I know it's been a little while. And so if you can just remember where we are, Romans 1 through 3, the majority of that is the bad news. The bad news of our sin. That before God, on our own, we deserve nothing less than the full wrath of God. And Paul, for almost two and a half chapters, beats us down with that bad news. Of our sin and God's wrath and what we truly deserve. And then in Romans 3.21, the end of Romans 3, he comes with the good news. Lifts us up and says, but now. But now God has made another way. The righteousness that we need to stand before God is fully loved and fully accepted as His children forgiven. That does not come from works, but through faith in what God's already done for us. It's faith and not works. That majestic claim at the end of Romans 3, you'd think He would say, okay, now, let's talk about that. Let's let's unpack that. Let's show how that would, would change your whole life. But He doesn't get there yet. But actually in Romans 4, in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, he pauses. Almost as if to ask, did you hear what I just said? That the gospel has nothing to do with your works. And everything to do with what's been done for you by Christ. We need to sit in that for a chapter. That is so good that we actually need to prove it. With the case study of Abraham. Which is what Romans 4 is about. And we'll be looking at the first 12 verses, which have already been read. So let me pray, and then we'll dig in. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning as we come to your word. Uh, We don't deserve to be here, but we are your people, and you've declared it to be so. And this is your word. Help us to hear it, and help it to mold and shape our hearts. But most of all, help us to see Jesus afresh this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I have a uh, a two-and-a-half-year-old. She turns three next month, so I should probably stop saying two-and-a-half. And And she, for the first two-and-a-half years of her life, was a very shy child, which makes sense because I'm more introverted. My wife's a little more introverted, and so we have an introverted child. But the past couple of months, something happened. And there was no event that happened, but she just came out of her shell uh, to a point at which we're over dinner, and she's just going crazy. We just look at each other and wonder, like, what happened to our shy child? It was so nice quiet in our home. And now she's in a phase where she wants to do everything by herself. All of us go through that at some point. I want to do it by myself. I want to do it myself. The problem is, and I love that, confidence, independence. The problem is she's two and a half and she can't do very much by herself. And so what typically happens is this. We'll be in a car uh, going somewhere. We get to where we're going. Um, My wife and I unbuckle our seatbelts and get out of the car so easily, flawlessly, And my daughter sees it and says, I want to do that myself. I want to get out of the car myself. And so she tries, and she's immediately met with an obstacle. Because she's literally strapped in to the seat. And she cannot unbuckle herself. So we have to go back there and unbuckle the waist strap and the the chest strap and and then try to get her out. But 110% of the time, she's kicked off her shoes. And so we've got to find her shoes for her and put them back on her feet. 
And then my wife drives an SUV, so it's a little high off the ground. So most of the time she actually needs help getting out of the seat to the floor and then from the floor to the ground. But as soon as her two little feet touch the ground, like as soon as they make contact with the asphalt, what does she say? I did it. Like I did it myself. I did it all by myself. Celebrate me. Look at what I've done. And as a parent, you see that, you kind of laugh, but you also kind of want to say like, no, you didn't. I did everything. You should thank me. But I see that picture, and I see a picture of actually my whole life. A wanting to be celebrated, a wanting significance from what I'm able to do by myself. We learn this from a very early age with grades in school. If you make the right grades, you'll have significance in life. You can be celebrated in life. You'll have the life of your dreams. Go to the college that you want to, and you get to that college. And if you make the grades there, if you have the extracurriculars, if you have everything in line, you'll get that great job afterwards. And then you'll find significance and you'll be a person to be celebrated. You get that job or whatever vocation it is that you're in. Become the best parent, that perfect parent, that perfect employee, that success, that bank account. It's what we do that we can find our significance in this world and to be celebrated. There's something good in that. There's something about being prideful of your work and pride in a good way to want to do good work in this world. But we come with that kind of attitude to Christianity so often and just want to be told, what do I do? Come on, preacher man, just tell me the three things that I need to do. And Paul here will say, if that's Christianity, if that's the gospel, that is not good news. If it's about what we can do, what we are able to do, the list of things that we need to get done, that is not good news. The gospel's better than that. The gospel's better than we can even imagine. Because it's not about us and what we do, but about Christ and what he's done. So what we see in the first 12 verses of Romans 4 is why the gospel is better than we think. Whether you've been a Christian your whole life, you're new to this thing, you're investigating it for the first time, you're back again to see what's going on with it, all of us need to come afresh and see it really is better than I think. It really is amazing. So two things this morning from Romans 4 on why the gospel is better than we think. First, the gospel is better than we think because of how God counts. I'm going to explain that in a minute. How God counts Second reason the gospel is better than we think, because of who God calls, specifically the type of people that he calls. So first, how God counts. I was helped by Brian Habig with this point, because he pointed out how much the word count is throughout this text. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. Counted, counted, counted all throughout. And what we mean by that is not so much how God counts, like one, two, three, four but how God reckons us, credits us, a change in status from being under His wrath to being accepted in His children. So how does God count us righteous? How does that happen? And to unpack this a little bit, Paul brings up the example of Abraham. And you kind of wonder, why Abraham? Right? We're studying him in Genesis, so this is kind of cool, good timing for Romans 4. But why Abraham all of a sudden in Romans 4? I think for two reasons. Uh, first, he goes back to Abraham to show that this is very old news. That it's always been about our hearts and not about our work. And so he goes back to Abraham, who we meet in Genesis 12. Abraham, way back when. Sometimes we think the God of the Old Testament is the God who wanted us to do things and sacrifice animals. And then now the New Testament, 
he's good and he's about grace. No, this is the way God has always worked. This is old good news. I think the second reason he brings Abraham into the picture here is that if there was anyone who's earned anything before God, it's Abraham. One of the three, the big three of the New Testament, Abraham, Moses, David. And he goes to the big one, the beginning of it all, the beginning of Israel, the beginning of God's people, Abraham. The one who was willing to sacrifice his own child when God asked him to. Abraham. If anyone can boast before God, it's him. And so Paul picks the big guy and says, let's look at him and ask the question, how was he saved? So look with me again, Romans 4.1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but are his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Abraham, big Abraham, first of the big three, how was he saved? Was because of what he did? No. He did nothing. It wasn't what he did. It wasn't the amazing things that he did for God. It wasn't the the almost sacrifice of Isaac. It wasn't his journeys. It wasn't the things that he did. It was that he believed God would do what he said he would do. Resting in God's promises, not in what he could do. Abraham, saved by grace, not works. And that counted him righteous. That is how he was saved. Now... It goes even further because you see the second of the big three, third of the big three, are mentioned again. David. King David. Verse 6, we actually read responsibly Psalm 32, which is quoted here. And David, what does he say about this blessed one whom God counts righteous? What is that blessing? Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So it works in two ways. The gospel, we are counted righteous not because of our works, but even more so, we're counted righteous despite our works. Despite our sin, despite the filthy rags of self-righteousness that we bring. That's amazing. That's not the way the world works. And so how does it work? How does this happen? Well, if it's not our works to save us, it's that of another. And if our sins are not counted against us, they have to be counted to another. It's the righteousness of Christ clothing us. We are counted righteous because of Him. I went to the University of South Carolina. Proud of that. Uh, And one of my best friends there... Uh, that I met was a man named Hub Blankenship. We met our freshman year, HUB, from Spartanburg, South Carolina. And Hub was one of those guys who, um, jovial, attracted everybody, just happy to be wherever he was. And one night, his freshman year, I remember him saying something about how he barely passed high school. He almost failed. And I remember thinking, I'm aware that USC is not this like huge academic institute like Harvard of the South. I know we're a party school, SEC school. But there's a standard. And I don't think barely passing high school is it. And then I asked him, uh, did you ace your SAT? Did you just crush it? And he said, no, I bombed it. 
And so now the question has to be asked, Hub, how did you get in? Like, how are you here right now? And his answer was simple, one sentence, and it explained everything. I got a recommendation letter from Darla Moore. Now, by the silence of this room, I know that Darla Moore is not a household name in Birmingham, Alabama. Darla Moore is a household name in Columbia, South Carolina. She was at one point the eighth richest woman in America. Uh, Just a fun fact about her, she was the second woman ever to be admitted into Augusta National Golf Club. It was only men for a long time. First was uh, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Second, Darla Moore. Uh, She has given more than $75 million to the University of South Carolina. And the name of the business school at USC is the Darla Moore School of Business. And so you can imagine in, in whatever the admission process is, the counselor gets my friend's form and he looks at the grades and he thinks, and he says, like, no, he's not in. And flips the page, sees the SAT score and thinks, that's even worse. Why did he even apply? And then he flips the third page and sees the letterhead of Darla Moore and her signature in ink at the bottom. And in between are some words that say, let him in, I vouch for him. Now, what happened in that moment? I don't want to over-dramatize it, but, but what happened? They looked at Hub, and they did not count his grades or SAT score against him. They looked at Hub and did not count his sins against him, but they credited to him Darla Moore's name. They did not see him. They saw her $75 million. They saw her power and influence. And they looked at his name and said, give him the corner dorm, give him the parking spot, give him whatever he wants. Her name is upon him. Now you know why Hub was just happy to be wherever he was. (laughs) In the gospel, when God looks at me, he does not see my sin and shame. He doesn't see the life that I've lived. He doesn't see all the terrible things that Joe Johnson has committed. What he sees is Christ's perfect life. His righteousness and treats me as such. That's the way God counts. That is amazing. Because I have to ask the question now, like, what do I find myself boasting in? How do I find myself counting? And I'll tell you this, as a new RUF campus minister, there's coming in time this fall where my whole identity and significance will be how many people are coming to my large group. That's how I'm counting. How many people are telling me I'm doing a great job? That's how I'm counting. How much power, influence, whatever it is. That's not how God counts. That's not works. But faith in Him. And now the question lingers, what is this faith? Right? If it's not works, but it's faith, so something's required of us, is faith that thing we have to conjure up in ourselves to believe when other people don't. Right? But just believe really hard, Right? This is how we earn it. That's not the way to think about it at all. But what we're talking about with this kind of faith is what Tim Keller calls a trust transfer. All of us have faith. All of us believe. All of us are trusting in something. The only question is, what is it? But actually what the Christian life is is slowly transferring that trust from ourselves and what we're able to do for us to someone greater. The trust in the one who came to save sinners, who said, it is finished. What are we boasting in? Bank accounts, success at work, being the perfect parent, I don't know what it is, but you can fill in the blank. And is it working? Or are we exhausted? 
And Paul is inviting us to rest in Jesus, whose work is already accomplished on our behalf. God counts differently, and that's amazing news. Second reason why the gospel is so amazing is who God calls, the type of people that God calls. Uh, now, in verse 9, there's a kind of a turn because Paul all of a sudden starts talking about circumcision, right? Which is not natural for us to think, like, as the argument goes, you're not thinking, why hasn't he brought up circumcision yet? That doesn't make any sense. But this is very natural for first century Roman church to think about. Because the question that he asks is, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Another way to ask that, is this only for the Jews? The children of Abraham. And you have to realize the Roman church is a mixed congregation. They have a lot of Jewish believers who are raised Jewish, circumcised, and all the things, raised in the right families, who came to know the Lord, and now they're in the Roman church, Jewish believers. But then there's another part of the congregation that came from Gentile backgrounds, pagan backgrounds, Roman nationalistic backgrounds, all kinds of backgrounds, and they're in there too. And Paul is uncovering this beautiful promise of God, this beautiful gospel, and the questions that will be in the congregation would be, wait, but Paul, like I was circumcised. What did that mean? Does that get me anything? But I think more importantly, another question would be asked in the congregation. Wait, Paul, this is great and everything, but is it for someone like me? I wasn't circumcised. I'm not a child of Abraham. I wasn't raised right. I wasn't raised in the right family. Is this promise for someone like me? In other words, is God really looking for someone like me? And Paul, so pastorally, says the question, look at Abraham again and ask yourself, was he saved before or after he was circumcised? Before or after this religious rite came in? Before and after he was Jewish? What is it? When was it? It was not after, but before. And not just like a minute before, but almost 30 years. In other words, Abraham was not saved because he was in the right family, from the right background. The right kind of person. It wasn't his Jewishness that saved him. But actually circumcision was only a seal of the promises of God that have already been given. It was to remind Abraham of what God had promised. To help his weak faith. But actually where God found Abraham was a pagan guy in a pagan nation worshipping pagan gods. Until God entered his life and said, you are mine. That's the type of people God calls. And like David the insignificant child of Jesse that was actually forgotten about by his father when choosing a king. Insignificant. Different backgrounds. Not the right family. That's the type of people God calls to this promise. Look, I'm a pastor. I'm almost, I'm getting ordained August 19th. Almost there. I passed seminary. I passed all my ordination exams. I know this stuff. I know the definitions. I can tell you justification, sanctification, whatever you want, whatever definition you want, I know it. Do you know what I think the hardest thing about Christianity is? Not just knowing it, but actually believing it for yourself. That this could be true for someone like me. Me. The the guy who's thought the things that I've thought. Who's done the things that I've done. Who's experienced the things that I've experienced? Like, does God really, is this really true for me? 
And Paul says, yes. This is for you. And church, this is for you. In Christ, we are children of Abraham. No matter where we come from, no matter how good we are at our jobs, no matter what the world says about us, no matter what opinions are around us, no matter what our opinion is of ourself, the only opinion that matters is Jesus's. And He loves you. Enough to come and bear our sins in shame and clothe us in His righteousness to make us children of the King. Paul is telling us that for a moment, just for a minute, take our eyes off ourselves and what we're able to do and look to Jesus and remember who we are and remember what God's doing with us, transforming us into the people that He would have us be and rest. And when we come to the table in just a minute, we also get a sign and a seal of God's promises for us. This does not save us. But it points us to the one who does. That we, in this busy world that demands so much from us, in our own mind that demands so much from ourselves, we can finally find the rest that we're looking for. And the one who's done it all. Do we believe that? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. As we look at this gospel, that sometimes we have a hard time believing. And a lot of us who grew up hearing it, we hear it and it falls on deaf ear and we're not blown away by it. Others of us are hearing it maybe for the first time or new to this. And we wonder, is this really true? Could this be true for me? Thank you for a text like this for our doubting hearts. And may we believe the gospel in the deepest, coldest, and most cynical parts of our hearts. And Jesus, may we see you clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.